Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. One story is dominating the news today across the world, and that, of course, is the near destruction by fire of one of the world's most loved monuments, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. As the fire was extinguished on Tuesday morning, talk was already turning to reconstruction and to what has been saved as well as what has been lost. We'll also be looking back today over Benjamin Netanyahu's narrow victory in the Israeli general election. But it's to Paris first, and Lara Marlowe joins me now from there. Lara, you were at the Notre Dame last night, and we'll talk in a moment about the atmosphere there, and I'll get some personal reflections from you as well. But just to start with the latest developments, how much do we know at this stage about the damage done by this fire? Um, well, according to the Ministry of the Interior and the Culture Minister, um, at least two-thirds of the roof was completely destroyed. Um, the timber in the roof, some of the timber was a 1,000 years old. Uh, it was over a 1,000 square meters of um, this sort of elaborate frame <clears throat> which held the roof up. That is completely gone. And, of course, the spire, which um, Viollet-le-Duc, uh, erected over the cathedral in 1860, that is completely gone. And that, the, the, the footage of it um, blazing and then falling over into, into the cathedral, where it actually pierced the vaulted ceiling of the sanctuary, uh, that is the image that has stayed in people's mind. Um, not unlike uh, the, the Twin Towers falling on 9-11, actually. I mean, it's a very powerful image, and, and that was on the front page of most of the newspapers. So, But they... The actual walls, um, the outside of the cathedral was preserved, and people are saying that is a miracle, that is good news. Uh, The two uh, bell towers that are on the the front facade of the cathedral were most threatened. The north um, tower was actually, I mean, I saw it glowing orange last night, and the firemen concentrated most of their efforts on keeping those two towers standing because they knew if the if the bell towers collapsed, it was the end of the cathedral, the whole thing would fall down. Uh, and they risked their lives going inside. Uh, it was quite an inferno, and they went inside to just to, to preserve that. They were afraid that the timber which held, holds the bells, the great bells of Notre Dame, uh, would burn, and then the bells would fall, and that would bring down the towers. So that the, the, the worst was avoided. As well as the building, of course, itself, Lara, the, the cathedral, it's famous for its many treasures and, and artworks and its stained glass windows. Um, do we know how much has been saved of all of those and, and how, what has been lost? What they called the treasure of the cathedral, um, which contained uh, the crown of thorns that Christ allegedly wore on the cross and the tunic of Saint Louis, Saint Louis, um, Louis IX, who was the, led the crusades, those were saved. Those were taken with some small paintings just across the river to the Hotel de Ville, the, the um, Paris Town Hall. Uh, the paintings, big p- paintings inside the cathedral, apparently suffered some smoke damage. They are going to be taken to the Louvre later this week uh, for cleaning and, and preservation, but they also survived. Um, it's not certain yet what damage has been done to the windows. The one of the I, I saw one of the small rose windows at the top, uh, basically in flames. I think that one was destroyed, but the big ones, in particular the the one on the west uh, facade, that's sort of over you know the the front of the cathedral, uh, which is the most beautiful one. Those were saved. Um, now it, 
may be that the, the I heard one story that the lead which held, holds the stained glass in was partly melted and that they would have to be dismantled. That hasn't actually been confirmed yet, um, but I, there is a lot of concern that those uh, windows, those beautiful stained glass windows may have been in some way damaged, weakened, destabilized. But they, the good news is, again, they still exist. They're, they're, they're there. Um, other, I mean, the vaulted ceiling is, is um, very badly damaged. Much of it is gone. That was quite apparent in the photographs that came out this morning. Uh, some photographers got into the cathedral with the firefighters. And you could. it was very strange because you could see a lot of the beauty of the church, you could see the, the golden crucifix above the altar and the altar intact and undamaged, uh, and then all this debris smoldering on the floor. And if you looked up, you would see part of the vaulted ceiling, the beautiful vaulted ceiling, and above that, the, the red-hot embers of the uh, timber frame of the ceiling burning away just above the, the, the ceiling. So... It's, it was a strange combination of, of preservation and destruction, if you like. But the destruction is very extensive, very dramatic, and will take many years to repair. And you spoke there a moment, Galara, about the fact that the bell towers were saved and the outer walls are still standing. Are there concerns about the stability, though, of the structure? Yes, absolutely, because the heat of the fire um, could damage any mortar, you know, damage the, the, the stone and the fact that the whole roof is gone. I mean, a roof is what holds a building together. So, yes, that is very much a concern that they mustn't do anything that would make the whole thing collapse. It was the, it kind of almost funny uh, anecdote to do with this whole tragedy is that Donald Trump, the moment he saw that Notre Dame was on fire, tweeted that the all the French had to do was use um, tanker aircraft and helicopters and just drop tons of water on it. And uh, the French uh, civil security tweeted back in English uh, very politely, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. That would would risk bringing down the whole structure because this, this, this is 850 years old, these walls. And if you dump tons of water on it, you, you probably would have just brought the whole thing down. So... Yeah, and I, th- I think it was notable that that was their only tweet in English of the night, so it was pretty clear who they were speaking <laughs> who they were speaking to yeah. there. Um, the the uh, the cause of the fire. I mean, initially the the focus um, the speculation centered on the reconstruction works that are being carried out. And mm-hmm. what's the latest on that? Well, that's that's almost certain because the, the, it is known that the fire started in the scaffolding on the center of the roof near the spire. That's where it started. Um, I've heard no real uh, educated speculation, um, but actually the best explanation I heard was from my Syrian newspaper vendor who said they were using, uh, they were welding and soldering up there. And he thought that probably a spark from the welding lodged in a piece of wood. And then the workers all went home and the spark uh, gradually, you know, spread and and caught fire. And and that's how it started. I, I thought that was a quite an um, original, interesting explanation. But the the officials say they have no explanation whatsoever. They hesitated last night about what kind of investigation to open, whether it should be a criminal investigation for deliberate, uh, for arson, or uh, an investigation for accidental uh, burning of the cathedral. And they, they finally decided that it would be accidental burning of the cathedral because they have no evidence whatsoever that there was any criminal action or intent. 
Um, it seems extraordinarily fortunate, Lara, that nobody was killed or injured in the fire, considering the numbers of people who visit the cathedral every day. What's the mm-hmm. explanation for that? Had it closed, actually, to visitors by the time the fire started? Or, or what's the kind of um, story around that? Uh, yes, I believe it was closed. And, and you're right, Chris, it's stunning. I mean, you may remember there was a fire in the 16th district of Paris earlier this year where um, I think it was 12 people killed. And that was just one small apartment building, you know, compared to this enormous cathedral. No, it was just very, very lucky. The cathedral was closed. The workers had all gone home. There was one fireman and two policemen were slightly injured. Um, But again, if one believes in miracles, um, perhaps that was a miracle that nobody was killed. Now, um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, visited the site on on Monday night. He talked immediately about reconstruction of the building. Now, I know it's very early, Lara, to talk about this. But again, insofar as is known, has anybody started to put a timescale on on this? Uh, Yes, there's been a lot of speculation about it today. Um, I heard Stéphane Bern, who is uh, sort of Mr. Architectural Heritage in France. Um, He's a a friend of the Macrons, and he was actually appointed uh, last year to oversee architectural um, heritage. He said on the radio this morning that it could take 40 to 50 years, uh, but then he subsequently re, uh, downgraded that, reduced that to an estimate of 10 to 20 years. So people are certainly talking in terms of decades. Uh, it will be very painstaking work because, uh, you know, because this cathedral is 850 years old and you can't just go in and use modern techniques and materials. They'll, they want to reconstruct it more or less uh, uh, to the extent that it's possible as it was. Um, now, virtually everything that Viollet le Duc, who was a, a great 19th century uh, medieval scholar and architect and restorer of monuments, he did a lot of the work, including the spire that collapsed. And one of the issues facing um, the, the architects and builders who are going to work on the cathedral is do they uh, replace Viollet-le-Duc's renovations as they were, or do they try to go back to the original Gothic cathedral? Um, so that's a, a, a small issue that's already arising. And uh, I don't know if anybody has talked about cost yet, but I saw a report there um, this morning that two French business magnates have pledged 300 million euro between them towards the cost, <laughs> which considering that's probably a starting, just to start things off, it, it probably it's probably an, an indication of the scale of what's involved here, isn't it? Yes, it did occur to me that, I mean, because I was asking myself, how much will I send? And in, in a way, it's almost unfortunate that they announced this because people may think, well, if uh, Bernard Arnault and François Pinot are giving 300 million, maybe I don't need to give anything. Um, but it, it will cost hundreds of millions of euro. Um, it was it was kind of funny, actually. Pinot, uh, who is the third richest man in France, said he would give 100 million. And then a few hours later, Bernard Arnault, who's actually the number one first richest man and a tax exile in, in Belgium, said, no, but we will give two. 200 million, so he doubled it. Um, but other, other money's coming in. The, the city of Paris said it will give 50 million. The Ile de France region, that's the region around Paris, said it would make an emergency fund of 10 million. Uh, and they've started a, a national collection online, the, the National Heritage Foundation, which by 3 p.m. this afternoon, um, so the day after, had collected 2.5 million. And that's just donations from private individuals. Um, and it's it's not impossible that some money will come from abroad. I mean, this is a, a, a UNESCO heritage site. One, one could imagine that the UN, UNESCO, and even perhaps the European Union. I mean, I, I think that it's 
a, a cause that um, it will not be difficult to raise money for. Um, Larry, you were at the scene last night. Um, could you describe the emotions of people you spoke to and, and indeed your own emotions in seeing this this really much loved 850-year-old building in, engulfed in flames? Um, people were devastated. Uh, I, it was like being in the front row of the cinema and watching, I, I said in my piece in today's paper, watching a horror film or, or perhaps a funeral. I mean, um, I saw people crying. Um, a lot of the people were fairly elderly and they had childhood memories of the cathedral. There was one woman who told me how her grandmother would take her on the bateau mouche on the Seine so that they could see the light coming through the, the stained glass windows at night. I thought that was a beautiful image. Um, one man told me he'd, he'd gone to Abbe Pierre's uh, funeral. Abbe Pierre was a a, a very humane, wonderful French priest who devoted his life to the homeless and in France, and he died within, I can't remember the exact year, but within the last decade or so, and there was standing room only outside the cathedral and how everyone had applauded when when they brought out his coffin. Um, And people remember it too, historically. I mean, David's painting of Napoleon's coronation, um, the celebration of the liberation of Paris in August of 1944, and not to mention the the last three uh, the funerals of the last three French presidents who died, uh, de Gaulle, Pompidou, and Mitterrand. They all had state funerals in Notre Dame Cathedral when all of the great and good of the world came to those funerals. I remember um, attending one funeral there for Jacques Cousteau uh, and, and writing about it for the Irish Times. I think that was in the late nineties. But actually, my personal memories, and, and they're only it's only today that they've started kind of flooding back to me. I wasn't thinking about them last night because I was too busy talking to people and, and watching the cathedral burn. But I remember when I was a student um, back in the late 70s, one of my great treats in life was to go and sit down in a cafe on the Place Saint-Michel, and I would just park myself in front of the window with a view of the facade of Notre Dame and order a, a hot chocolate and sit there and study for a few hours. And I, I love to do that. And actually, very recently, only last week, um, I wrote about this. I, I became a naturalized French citizen, and I chose as my celebration lunch a cafe right behind Notre Dame Cathedral where you can see the flying buttresses. And I very much noticed the scaffolding. And I, th- I remember saying to, to the friend I took to lunch, isn't it a shame that, that um, you know, they've got all this ugly scaffolding on the cathedral? So that was, that was less than a week ago, just four or five days ago. Uh, but that's what the cathedral meant that much to me that on the day I became a French citizen, I wanted to, to look at it. Indeed, Lara, regular readers of the Irish Times would have seen a, a very moving piece you wrote last week about becoming a French citizen and the ceremony um, that, that was involved. Um, something you've documented in your reporting from, from Paris over recent years is the deep divisions that have emerged in, in French society. And we've seen that manifested through different ways, the rise of the far right, maybe the more recently the ongoing uh, Gilets jaunes, Yellow Vests protests. And from, from the outside, France has looked certainly for some time as a country that's certainly not at ease with itself. Do you think something might positive might emerge from this catastrophe and that it might have a kind of a unifying effect and the mission to repair Notre Dame might turn into a mission to repair France? Uh, Yes and no. I I think in the short term, definitely there is a feeling of of fraternité uh, today. There is a sense that France is united in mourning and, and it really is mourning, even though this is just a building, but one in an extraordinary building. Um, and all of the political leaders are, are united in that. Uh, Macron was supposed to 
uh, give a speech on television last night about his the results of his great debate. He was supposed to hold a press conference tomorrow. He's canceled everything. Uh, most of the political parties were supposed to start campaigning for the European elections this week, and they have all canceled their events. And they're saying, you know, we are united in grief uh, for Notre Dame Cathedral. So initially, yes, there is unity uh, and and a shared sense of what it means to be French, that this was their history. Uh, this is, or I should say our history now, I suppose. Uh, there, is, there is a sense that France has lost something and that it will never quite be the same again. Um, in the longer term, I doubt it. I, I believe there is some, something called national character. And I mean, if you remember at the time of the French Revolution in, in 1789, they were chopping heads off of the statues of Notre Dame Cathedral because uh, the, the, the peasants who did this, um, who you might compare to today's uh, Gilets Jaunes, uh, they mistook the statues, which were biblical characters, for the kings of France. Uh, and so the, the, the cathedral was looted and damaged at the time, although it was nothing as bad as the, the damage that happened in the fire overnight. Um, so, so the cathedral has been also the scene of, of discord in the past, uh, and you still have, I know, aristocrats in France who still regret uh, the loss of the monarchy and who hate the revolution. And on the other hand, I know people who think that they should have, have guillotined all of the, the aristocrats. So those divisions are there. They're part of the national character. I suppose you could even say they're part of France's charm, but I don't think that... Um, this this tragedy of the the fire at Notre Dame is going to change that in the long run. I suppose if you want to end on an optimistic note, uh, you could say that this partial destruction of Notre Dame has rallied French people, has rallied sympathy from the rest of Europe and indeed the rest of the world. And whatever happens, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral will survive. It will be rebuilt and France, too, will survive. Well, Lara, good to end on an optimistic note on such a, a distressing day, really, but thank you for that. Thanks again to Lara Marlowe, our Paris correspondent. It's to Israel now and to the aftermath of last week's general election, which resulted in a narrow but clear victory for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, leaving him poised for a fifth term in office. Mark Weiss joins me now from Jerusalem. Um, Mark, Benjamin Netanyahu emerged as the narrowest of winners of this election, 36 seats for his Likud party compared to 35 for its main challenger, the the centrist Blue and White party. It's still a good way short of the 61 seats and needs to have a majority in the Knesset. So what happens now? Um, First of all, just a a quick update. Uh, As of a couple of hours ago, the Likud has lost uh, uh, one of those 36 seats and gone down to 35 at the expense of one of the ultra-Orthodox parties called United Torah Judaism, who have gained an extra seat from seven to eight. And that's the final count. The count has just finished uh, with all uh, what, what we call the double ballot, the double, ballot, the double the double envelope, sorry, that's the soldiers and the diplomats and the prisoners. So that's the final tally, meaning that the Likud, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, received exactly the same seats in the end as the centrist blue and white party. However, in Israel, it's um, the blocs that are the deciding factor because all Israeli governments um, have been coalition governments uh, made up of um, a number of parties. And the blocs paint um, a clear 
Democrats' uh, victory for Netanyahu's right-wing religious bloc. Together, um, the Likud and the right-wing and religious parties have 65 uh, seats, and that's official now, because um, as of a few hours ago, President uh, Reuven Rivlin uh, finished his process of consulting with all the um, leaders of the parties that have gained Knesset seats. 65 Knesset members um, uh, belong to parties that recommended Netanyahu be the next prime minister. Tomorrow evening, President Rivlin will task uh, Benjamin Netanyahu with forming the next government. He has 28 days to do that and can request an extra two weeks if necessary. Usually, traditionally, the two weeks is necessary because we are now embarking on um, the rather painful process of coalition wrangling. Each party that wants to be a member of the coalition has its list of demands when it comes to both policy and um, ministerial portfolios. And at the end of the process, uh, it's the job of the prime minister to cobble together a coalition based presumably on compromises between these various demands. And tell us, Mark, something about the parties that he will be talking to over the next two weeks and and what kind of demands they are likely to bring. Well, it's a very religious and a very right-wing coalition, as indeed was the outgoing government, but this time even more so. The only significant change in the parties that we think will make up the government uh, is that um, the far-right Jewish Home Party will no longer be in the in, in the coalition because they failed to enter the Knesset. They were beneath the minimum threshold required. Instead, another right-wing party that is even more extreme um, has been elected called the Union of the Jewish Right. Um, they are very um, close to the uh, settler movement and also some um, overtly racist, anti-Arab elements within Israeli society. Um, So the policy guidelines of the government um, are expected to be shifting even further to the right. And remember, during the election campaign, the prime minister himself, for the first time ever, promised that he will annex at least some of the Jewish settlements in the West Bank. So not only is this um, government in the making uh, being dubbed the uh, annexation government, It's also being dubbed the um, indictment government because one of the key um, elements as far as Prime Minister Netanyahu is is concerned is to ensure that the parties he's bringing into the coalition will allow him to continue to serve as Prime Minister even if, as expected, he will be indicted on very serious corruption charges at a later stage either this year or early next year. And and sometimes, Mark, politicians make promises during election campaigns and they can somehow maybe get out of them afterwards. In, in this case, that, that particular commitment, for example, to annex um, some West Bank settlements, will these right-wing parties, he, parties he's now negotiating with, will they seek to hold him to that commitment? They certainly will, and they already uh, have made that loud and clear. Um, his promise to annex um, uh, at least some settlements in the West Bank was clearly a ploy in the closing uh, days of the election campaign to win over votes uh, from uh, a number of these um, smaller uh, right-wing parties that um, are to the right of the Likud. And the ploy certainly succeeded because um, 
uh, the Likud won more votes in the end that, will, that, that was predicted in the polls, and the smaller right-wing parties uh, lost seats to the Likud. So they will certainly be holding him to that election promise. What are the implications, Mark, of all of this for the now stalled Palestinian peace process? We remember when Donald Trump became US president, he promised he would help deliver the deal of the century. Um, are the prospects now for a long-term settlement, are they receding? The prospects were never great, to be honest. Um, and the, the important fact is that we still do not know um, what is in this Trump peace plan. Uh, there was a leak a couple of days ago from the Washington Post that said uh, it will not include uh, a recommendation for an independent Palestinian state, meaning uh, no two-state solution. Now, that's a very radical departure from um, um, the U.S. administration's uh, traditional thinking on uh, how a Middle East peace settlement will look like in the end. It's a dramatic reversal of uh, uh, policy from all the previous administrations. Although, again, it hasn't been confirmed that that is actually what is in the um, uh, one of the elements in in the plan. Um, Remember that Benjamin Netanyahu and um, Donald Trump are very close, um, as are the US administration and the Netanyahu um, um, government. It's a fair assumption, I think, that the sides have coordinated quite closely ahead of um, the publication of the details of the report, which is expected in a couple of months, maybe in the month of June. We're not sure exactly when yet. Certainly, it won't be before the Israeli, the new Israeli government is has been uh, finalised. Um, so, rem- so we're waiting um, to hear the details, but it's already clear uh, from statements from the Palestinian leadership that they are almost certain to reject the Trump police plan. And um, to come back to something you referred to a moment ago, Mark, these corruption charges against Netanyahu, what is the status of those? And do, do they pose a, a, a real threat to his premiership? Could they still bring his, his career to a premature end? They could theoretically, um, although um, constitutionally an Israeli prime minister would not necessarily have to step down if he is indicted on corruption charges. Uh, the judicial process at the moment is that... Um, The Attorney General has recommended indicting the Prime Minister, but that's pending a hearing. The hearing will begin probably in July, but uh, already we're talking a possibility of a few months later. It could be a long process, could stretch out to many months, even a year maybe, before the hearing uh, process uh, is completed. And only after then would the Prime Minister be indicted. Um, There are serious charges. Uh, and that's why, uh, as I said earlier, a key element for the prime minister is to ensure that all the coalition parties will buy into some kind of deal uh, under which um, Netanyahu will not be forced to step down, even if he has to face a long and protracted legal uh, battle to clear his name. He, by the way, has claimed all along that he is innocent. Uh, and all these charges are some kind of conspiracy by the uh, by his political opponents and the judiciary and the media, which he all considers part of one big left wing conspiracy against him. And is there a sort of Trump effect there, Mark, whereby you know the more these forces seem to line up against them, I presume th- th- does that galvanise his supporters even more to to stay loyal to him? Very much so. 
Uh, and it must be said that his base is extremely loyal. They do buy into this conspiracy uh, theory. Um, Netanyahu's always um, rallied his troops against what he terms the Israeli elite, uh, which, uh, as I said, uh, he considers the judiciary, uh, the media particularly, uh, and the ac academia as well, as all bastions of old left-wing uh, um, privileged Israeli um, minority. It's, it's, it's got to be said today that group is a minority. Um, and the base buys into that uh, very much so. They believe Netanyahu is innocent. And even if they believe he may have done something wrong, they consider it uh, a trivial and, and certainly not something that could bring down a prime minister who, in their eyes, is a leading figure on the international stage. And Mark, finally, where does this result leave the Israeli opposition? It was a good performance by the Blue and White Party led by Benny Gantz, but they still lost. They lost, and they are um, a centrist party. Probably, I would say it's more accurate to describe them as centre-right than even centre-left. Um, the left in Israel, the traditional left, has been decimated. It must be said, there's no other word to describe it. Uh, the two main left-wing parties, the Labour Party, which for the first three decades of this country's existence ran the country, are down to six seats, the lowest ever performance. And the uh, other left-wing party, Meretz, uh, only managed four seats. So between the two left-wing parties, they only managed to, to win 10 seats. The left in Israel is ever-shrinking and no longer uh, a, a can be considered a serious political force. Uh, the new centrist alliance did put up a good fight, it must be said. They ended up, as I mentioned before, with exactly the same number of seats as the league could. But that's very much an ad hoc alliance for this election. It remains to be seen if they will be able to stick together. They have, they have no real ideology, um, and it's based on personalities and people that were brought into the list uh, in the hope to win over the electorate. Um, I'm not sure that in four years' time from now, they will still be together as a cohesive political force. Mark, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>